1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Later in our second hour today, we'll share a classic interview with Kevin Goose. He's the author of Dry Bones Redeeming Your Past. That's coming up in the second hour. Taking a look at some of the uh, headlines, Senator Ted Cruz is explaining why he agreed to argue the Pennsylvania election case if the Supreme Court takes it up. Well, the senator told Hannity on Monday that he agreed to present oral arguments before the Supreme Court in a key election-related case. Should the high court take the matter up? Because the matter raises very serious issues. Well, the case brought Representative Mike Kelly and Pennsylvania GOP congressional candidate Sean Parnell um, alleges that uh, 2019 state law allowing no-excuse mail-in voting is unconstitutional. If the court agrees, according to KDKA, Kelly and Parnell said most of the Commonwealth's mail-in votes in this past presidential election could be thrown out. Now, whether or not that is constitutional, the Supreme Court is uh, less inclined to overturn an election, and that will certainly play into whatever decision they make to either hear the case or decline to hear it. It raises issues of law, and I believe the Supreme Court should choose to take the case, Ted Cruz said, the senator. Uh, speaking to host Sean, Can- uh, Sean Hannity, I think they should hear the appeal. Well, in other developments, the Arizona legislature closed as Trump's lawyers pushed for a special session to pick electors. And Giuliani says the push for legislators to pick electors is furthest along in Georgia. Gordon Chang is warning China is going to uh, push a President uh, Biden around and the U.S. has to push back. President-elect Joe Biden will be little match for the incredible arrogance of the Chinese government. China expert Gordon Chan warned uh, last night uh, they're going to push a president around, Chang told the host. Uh, they're going to do things which are dangerous because uh, we're going to have to push back. Under President Trump, the Chinese didn't try this because they were afraid of him. So what I'm concerned about is the state of mind of China, this is dangerous. Well, Chang was reacting to video of a November 28th lecture in Renmin University professor Di Dongsheng, in which he bragged that China has been able to fool the United States through their ties to political and business leaders. That's absolutely true that China does have that relationship into what uh, he calls the core circles of America's real power. In other developments, Tucker Carlson says, our elites' collusion with China is real, and widespread. And the Trump administration shut down Chinese cultural exchange programs, calling them soft power propaganda tools. And a new report attributes the strange attacks on U.S. diplomats to microwave radiation. Victims are demanding an investigation. A 90-year-old woman is the first to receive the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine in the U.K. Margaret Keenan, 90, reportedly said she felt privileged when she became the first person in the United Kingdom to receive the Pfizer-BioNTech coronavirus vaccine early Tuesday in Coventry, England. The BBC reported that the vaccine was administered at 6.30 a.m. Around 800,000 doses of the vaccine were expected to be in place for the start of the immunization program on Tuesday, a day that Health Secretary Matt Hancock has reportedly dubbed a V-Day A nod to triumphs in World War Two. Well, the UK was the first country to authorize the vaccine for emergency use. In the trials, the vaccine was shown to have around 95 percent efficacy. Vaccinations will be administered starting on Tuesday at around 50 hospital hubs in England, Scotland, Wales and uh, Northern Ireland will also begin their vaccination rollouts the same day. Uh, Said the 90-year-old recipient, I feel so privileged to be the first person vaccinated against COVID-19. It's the best early birthday present I could wish for because it means I can finally look forward to spending time with my family and friends in the new year after being on my own for most of the year, Keenan said, according to the report. In other developments, Trump plans to sign a coronavirus vaccine executive order prioritizing Americans over foreign nations. And an MSNBC anchor is urging New Jersey's governor to punish GOP partiers who broke COVID-19 restrictions. New York's threatening, uh, uh, threatened lockdown spared Saturday Night Live once again as the show uses a COVID-19 loophole to keep its in-person audience. And Florida's Pro is disinfecting first responder and police vehicles for free. The Florida police raided the home of the fired health department data scientist who built the state's COVID-19 tracker. The reason, yet unknown, Chuck Yeager, the first man to break the sound barrier, has died. He was 97. President-elect Joe Biden has nominated retired four-star Army General Lloyd Austin to be the next Secretary of the Defense Defense, and a Minnesota resident's Christmas light display is being shamed for its harmful impact to the community in an anonymous letter. Well, Tesla CEO Elon Musk, he's moved his private foundation from California to Texas. One doesn't need to think too hard. Uh, As to the reason why Goldman Sachs has applied to acquire a joint venture Chinese securities firm and Chase's Freedom Flex card has been named the best credit card for the new normal. Bookies are listing Kamala Harris as the early favorite for 2024 and Tesla's market value hits more than 600 billion for its first time joining the ultra small club. Los Angeles DA is declaring that there will be no more prosecution of prostitution or resisting arrest. From the story, the LA County uh, DA, George Gaskin, he's issued a directive to prosecutors that the following misdemeanors will be declined for prosecution with exemptions trespassing, disturbing the peace, driving without a license, prostitution, resisting arrest. Trespassing. Now, if someone goes onto your private property, maybe sets up a tent, they're not going to charge. Uh, criminally charged that or prosecute disturbing the peace, driving without a license, prostitution, resisting arrest. Apparently, the danger that might be associated with some of these to the public is no longer a concern in Los Angeles. Well, Senator Ted Cruz uh, once again is standing up in Pennsylvania to try to urge the Supreme Court to hear his argument that he's willing to make. And parents rebel and send their kids to closed playgrounds. Parents have had enough. Bethany Mandel wrote about this uh, back in June. Meanwhile, wrestlers are told they can't shake hands, so kids can't go to the playground. Wrestlers can wrestle face-to-face, back-to-back, but they can't shake hands. Well, the Chicago Teachers Union has filed a request to stop schools from opening, the one business that doesn't want to open but expects to still get paid. It's an interesting consideration. It gets worse. The union says the push to reopen schools is due to sexism, racism, and misogyny. Guy Benson responds, uh, saying it's not about the science and it's not about the children. It's about the unions and it's outrageous. Well, Cornell University says that students must get flu vaccinations unless, of course, you're a person of color. So apparently it's okay for you to get the flu and to suffer whatever they're trying to avoid other students suffering by requiring they get a flu vaccination apparently this is considered racist oddly this same concept could have been uh, could have come from the KKK you're going to be vaccinated so that you don't uh, catch uh, the uh, the flu but Persons of color, you're welcome to get sick and perhaps die. This is regarding the flu, not COVID, but Cornell's, uh, from Cornell, students who identify as black, apparently you have to identify as black now, indigenous or as a person of color, may have personal concerns about fulfilling the compact requirements based on historical injustices and current events. Sadly, the flu doesn't really take into account historical injustices and current events The flu is going to strike you if you just happen to be breathing. So if you're African-American, good luck with the flu. A Boston judge has allowed the mother of a terrorist to sue the, the police department that shot him. From the Police Tribune, U.S. District Court Judge Indiri Talwani has cleared the way for the mother of a terrorist who was killed by police in 2015 to proceed with a civil suit against the law enforcement officers who shot him. The uh, young man was fatally shot by members of the Joint Terrorism Task Force. So we may come to the point where we don't have police officers and we don't have those who will um, try to uh, protect us from terrorism. Well, one of the members of the task force has been watching this individual in connection with a plot to behead conservative blogger Pamela Geller. Well, that might explain why there's opposition. Well, Goya Foods is named uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez Employee of the Month. AOC called for the boycott of the company, and sales skyrocketed. There's new software that can detect when employees are lazy. Quick, James, look busy. Um, (laughs) From the story, United States Patent and Trademark Office records uh, a Microsoft program, they're staking a claim over a novel software that allows employers to monitor staffers' body language and facial expressions during virtual and in-person meetings and deliver a numeric productivity source, or rather score topping out at 800 for companies overall. So if you're on a Zoom meeting, just keep in mind, your posture, your facial expression, your appearance as being engaged may be judged by this new Microsoft software. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue to wind our way through the news. So stay with us.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and no, Seattle's not with us today, but they'll be back on Thursday later in the program. We'll hear from Kevin Goose. He's the author of Dry Bones: Redeeming Your Past. Again, looking at the news, Georgia recertified Biden's victory after two recounts. And the president's options are dwindling as the safe harbor deadline looms. We'll explain the safe harbor uh, a bit later in the program. Sidney Powell's Kraken election lawsuits have been dismissed in Georgia and in Michigan. And the Trump campaign has filed a stronger lawsuit in Georgia. Well, the House will vote Wednesday on a week-long stopgap to avoid a government shutdown. And President Trump uh, is going to sign a coronavirus vaccine executive order prioritizing Americans over foreign nations. While well, COVID deaths uh, match the April peak with hospitals still filling and the UK is giving out the first doses of a COVID vaccine. The FDA analysis of Pfizer's vaccine finds it effective and safe. It's very likely to be approved. And Americans' mental health rating has fallen to a 20 year low. Well, Iran is preparing to expand its nuclear program. France, Germany and Britain have rebuked Iran after the Iranian uranium enrichment announcement. Well, having your cake and eating it, too? Well, the Chinese exports have surged to record levels as the China-caused lockdowns return to the West. Permanent and long-term restaurant closings have topped 110,000 and counting. And a woke Santa, he rejected a boy's request for a Nerf gun, a Nerf gun, making the little tot cry. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel has slammed those wishing a Merry Christmas because apparently it's just that offensive. And Sports uh, Illustrated has honored athletes for parroting social justice talking points. And Seattle's woke mayor, Jenny Summer of Love Durkin, won't run for re-election, perhaps for obvious reasons. And Michigan's governor once again extends his lockdown orders. Governor Cuomo is threatening to end indoor dining if the COVID rate doesn't stabilize. And a Staten Island pub is battling the Big Apple elite to stay open during the pandemic. They want to feed their kids. Such a novel idea. Somebody actually paid $192,000. $192,000 for Barack Obama's high school basketball jersey. By the way, I have a pair of running spikes. I used them at the University of Oregon. I'd sell them to you for half that. Just a thought. And a scientist ties the coronavirus spread to Neanderthal retreat. A former head of Israel's space division says aliens are real and that Trump was on the verge of confirming that fact. We'll see what happens. On this day in history, 1980, Beatles star John Lennon is shot and killed outside his New York City apartment building by an apparently deranged fan, Mark David Chapman. On this day in history, 1813, Beethoven's Symphony Number no. Seven in A major, in A major rather, um, is first performed in Vienna with Beethoven himself conducting. 1854, Pope Pius IX proclaims the Catholic dogma of the Immaculate Conception, which holds that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is free of original sin from the moment of her own conception. 1863, President Abraham Lincoln issues his proclamation of amnesty and reconstruction for the South. On this day in history, 1941, the United States enters World War II as Congress declares war on Imperial Japan a day after the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. 1987, President Ronald Reagan and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev sign a treaty at the White House calling for the destruction of intermediate-range nuclear missiles. 1998, the Supreme Court rules that police cannot search people and their cars after merely ticketing them for routine traffic violations. On this day in history, 2013, hundreds of thousands of protesters pour into the streets of the Ukrainian capital of Kiev toppling the statue of former Soviet leader Vladimir Lenin and blocking key government buildings in an escalating standoff with the president on the future of the country. Well, the state of Texas on Tuesday filed an election lawsuit in the U.S. Supreme Court asking Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan and Wisconsin, allegedly alleging rather that the state's unconstitutionally changed election laws, treated voters unequally and triggered significant voting irregularities by relaxing ballot integrity measures. Trust in the integrity of our election processes is sacrosanct and binds our citizenry and the states in this union together. Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin destroyed that trust and compromised the security and integrity of the 2020 election. That's a quote from Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton in a statement. The states violated statutes enacted by their duly elected legislatures, thereby violating the Constitution. By ignoring both state and federal law, these states have not only tainted the integrity of their own citizens' vote, but of Texas and every other state that held lawful elections. He went on to say their failure to abide by the rule of law casts a dark shadow of doubt over the outcome of the entire election. We now ask that the Supreme Court step in to correct this egregious error. Well, Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro, he called the lawsuit meritless and beyond reckless, an attack on our free and fair election system. Uh, They are a scheme by the president of the United States and some in the Republican Party to disregard the will of the people and name their own victors. Shapiro said on Twitter, this isn't a a pick of our um, uh, your own ending novel. This is a democracy. Well, the motion filed by the Texas attorney general is a publicly uh, publicity stunt, not a a serious legal pleading. That's what the Michigan attorney general Dana Nessel said in a statement. Texas is uh, likely to change the outcome of the ice bowl as it is in the outcome of the Wisconsin voters, as likely uh, in the presidential election. The Wisconsin Attorney General, Josh Call, had to say all responses to this call. With all due respects, uh, respect, Texas Attorney General is constitutionally, legally and factually wrong about Georgia. A spokesperson for the Georgia Attorney General Told uh, Speaking to the Texas Tribune, the allegations in the lawsuit are false and irresponsible. Well, the lawsuit seeks a determination by the Supreme Court that the four battleground states conducted the 2020 election in violation of the Constitution. Texas is asking the Supreme Court to prohibit the counting of the Electoral College votes cast by the four states. For the defendants, uh, which have already appointed electors, the lawsuit asked the court to direct the state legislature to appoint new electors in line with the Constitution. Now, how likely is this going to um, move forward? Uh, First of all, it depends on whether or not the Supreme Court will decide to take up the case. They may decide that Texas does not have standing in the case. uh, And as is typically the case, the Supreme Court and lower courts are loath to uh, make decisions that will overturn an election. So we'll see what happens. But this is uh, pending and it's being called upon by the attorney general from Texas. Meanwhile, the Arizona GOP chairwoman Kelly Ward says that she's filing an appeal with the state Supreme Court, that's the state Supreme Court, to challenge the certification of the November 3rd election results there. Ward told the local station that she filed an appeal with the Arizona Supreme Court on the 4th of this month to reverse the state's certification. The court confirmed that it received her appeal on Monday, saying it would decide the matter without an oral argument according to the news outlet. Well, it came after a Maricopa County judge ruled that Ward's petition failed to prove any fraud occurred when she tried to challenge the results in the county, which includes Phoenix. Well, on November 30th, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey and Attorney General Mark uh, Branovich they signed off on the Secretary of State Katie Hobbs' certification of the election results. All three officials said that they have been uh, seen no evidence of fraud that would overturn the election results in that state. Well, the GOP lawsuit there pertains to Maricopa County, which Democrat Joe Biden won by 45,000 votes, according to state election data. Biden, according to the data, is leading Trump by about 10,457 votes in Arizona. Well, Ward, in a Twitter post on Monday, wrote that the ballot rejection rate for mail-in ballots in maricopa county is unusual almost two million absentee early ballots returned in maricopa county and only 600 were rejected for signature mismatch 600 why pretend to check well in a video posted on twitter she said that maricopa county judge randall warner was acting under a self-imposed deadline prompting the gop's appeal to the state's higher court and President Donald Trump's effort to snatch a second term through a series of state and federal court challenges has been flaming out for weeks. Now the calendar has all but extinguished the prospect. Trump's options are dwindling as the safe harbor deadline is looming. Well, let me explain. December 8th is the so-called Safe harbor date for the presidential election, a milestone established in federal law for states to conclude any disputes over the results. Well, Trump's failure to gain traction in litigation with his lawyers and allies failing to block crucial states from declaring Joe Biden the winner means the safe harbor deadline stands as another potentially insurmountable reason for the court to decline. To intervene. We'll talk more about that when we return, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the president's options. They're dwindling as the safe harbor deadline has come. Uh, December 8th is the so-called safe harbor date for the presidential election. It's a milestone. As I mentioned, it's established in federal law for states to conclude any disputes over results. I'm not sure that's. Uh, Feasible under these kinds of circumstances, but Trump has failed to gain traction in litigation with his lawyers and allies failing to block crucial states from declaring Joe Biden the winner. It means that the safe harbor deadline stands as another insurmountable reason for the courts to decline to intervene. And that may, in fact, uh, influence the decision on the Supreme Court in responding to Texas a request for them to intervene. Well, Trump's legal team publicly says that the safe harbor deadline is meaningless and they'll simply disregard it, set by a 140 year old statute. The date isn't enshrined in the Constitution, they say, but the campaign's legal filings tell another story. As Trump lawyers pressed courts for urgent action ahead of the deadline, midnight on Tuesday, and warned of irreparable consequences if they don't. So, on the one hand, they're acknowledging That um, deadline. On the other hand, they're saying it's meaningless. Well, the last time a uh, presidential election was resolved at the Supreme Court, the safe harbor deadline proved pivotal and several legal actions seem to be hurtling toward a potential resolution by today, including a Pennsylvania dispute where Justice Samuel Alito initially asked for responses by Wednesday, but decided to expedite further on Tuesday with the speculation about the safe harbor deadline. Well, during the 2000 dispute between George W. Bush and Al Gore, some of you remember that. That quite well. As the court's majority essentially awarded the presidency to Bush, the justices cited that looming deadline as a reason Florida could not initiate a new manual count. The majority treated the safe harbor very seriously. Ohio State University law professor Ned Foley points out that's why there was no uh, remand to give Florida another chance at recounting. Indeed, the very timing of the high court's hasty resolution of the Bush versus Gore case seemed driven by the safe harbor date. The justices heard uh, arguments the day before it and decided on the very day, which was established in an 1887 statute intended to prevent uncertainty about the winner of the presidential election. So it would appear if the Supreme Court takes as seriously as they did back uh, when it was Bush versus Gore, that this will be the last day that any action taken on the part of the Trump administration will have the likely outcome of the Supreme Court um, continuing to challenge the outcome in some states. Much of the nation is still focused on the outcome of the presidential election, with Donald Trump and his legal team alleging widespread voter fraud and Democrats and their mainstream media brethren deriding him as having refused to concede while they falsely claim a fraud-free election. Well, in two razor thin House races, however, one in Iowa and the other in New York, the Republican candidates have been certified as winners only to have the Democrats challenge the results, though thus far to no avail. In Iowa, Republican Marionette Miller Meeks beat Democrat Rita Hart by just six votes out of three hundred and ninety thousand cast six votes. After two weeks of haggling and the canvassing and recanvassing of the, the votes, Iowa State Legislature on Monday certified Miller-Meeks flipping yet another seat Democrats had previously held. But Hart is refusing to concede, has instead elected to play dirty. She's calling on House Democrats to dust off a rather controversial 1969 statute last used 35 years ago. Essentially, Hart wants the Committee on House Administration to apply the statute so her Democrat colleagues can override the will of Iowa's voters. The Supreme Court has uh, held that the House, not the courts, has the final say on the members' elections under the Constitution's Article I. The goal of Congresswoman Hart and her lawyers, then, would be to cast enough doubt on the outcome to provide sufficient uh, cover for overturning that outcome. Well, the Wall Street Journal's editorial board highlighted the most recent use of that statute, uh, noting that House Democrats in 1985 took advantage of the same process to reverse Indiana state certification of a Republican winner in a congressional race. They refused to seat either candidate in January and in May declared that the Democrat winner after uh, their recount excluded some 32 absentee votes. Excluded them. Meanwhile, in New York's 22nd district, Republican Claudia Tenney has been um, has beaten rather Democrat incumbent Anthony Brindisi uh, is the in the preliminary final count. Well, Tenney's uh, lead is a tenuous 12 votes, but Brindisi's uh, lawyers have asked the courts to review the uh, the county election board's decision on certain disputed ballots. Failing that, uh, Brindisi is, uh, might make the same request of the House Democrats that Iowa's Hart. Is making. Well, if these two wins hold up, the Republicans will have gained 12 House seats. This leaves the Democrats with a slim nine seat majority, and this after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and company were predicting a gain of that many seats themselves. Well, gone is any perceived mandate for Pelosi. The question is whether House Democrats will give in to their worst political instincts and find a way to seat their fellow Democrats instead of the apparently rightful Republican winners. Would Pelosi seek to justify such a blatantly partisan power grab by uh, pointing to Trump's uh, legal challenges of the presidential election? Well, the 117th Congress will be seated on January 3rd. Until then, sadly, anything is possible. Well, President-elect Joe Biden is nominating retired four-star Army General Lloyd Austin for Secretary of Defense. If confirmed by the Senate, Austin would be the first black leader of the Pentagon. Well, uh, President-elect, uh, presumptively, Joe Biden will nominate the four-star General Lloyd Austin to serve as Secretary of Defense in his administration. Multiple sources uh, with knowledge of the matter have said Biden's long standing relationship with him was a key factor in his selection. The source with knowledge in the matter says that Peter— uh, that Austin rather served as commander of U.S. and coalition forces in Iraq during President Obama's first term in office. If confirmed by the Senate, Austin would be the first black leader of the Pentagon. He's expected to formally announce the pick later this week. Austin was tapped for the secretary of defense role over uh, Michelle Flourney. A former senior Pentagon official who had been considered a front-runner for the position, a former top military official in both the Clinton and Obama administration, Flourney, or Flournoy, I think is probably the correct way to pronounce it, was said to be on the short list of candidates for Secretary of State by Hillary Clinton if she were to have won the White House in 2016 which just for memory's sake, she did not. Biden also had uh, considered J. Johnson, a former Pentagon general counsel and former secretary of Homeland Security. As a career military officer, the 67-year-old Austin is likely to face opposition from some, Congre- some in Congress and in the defense establishment who believe in drawing a clear line between civilian and military leadership in the Pentagon. And although many previous defense secretaries have served briefly in the military, only two, George Marshall and James Mattis, have been career officers. Marshall also served as Secretary of State. Well, like Mattis, Austin would need to obtain a congressional waiver to serve as Defense Secretary. The laws were meant to preserve the civilian nature of the Department of Defense. He is retired. Austin is a 1975 graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and served 41 years In uniform, Biden has known Austin at least since the general's years leading the U.S. coalition troops in Iraq, while Biden was vice president and Austin was commander in Baghdad of the multinational corps Iraq in 2008 when Barack Obama was elected president and he returned to lead U.S. troops from 2010 through 2011. He also served in 2012 as the first black vice chief of staff of the army and served number two ranking position there. A year later, he assumed command of U.S. Central Command, where he fashioned and began implementing a U.S. military strategy for rolling back the Islamic State militants in Iraq and Syria. Austin retired from the army in 2016 and would need a congressional waiver, as I mentioned, uh, to receive um, the honor of the confirmation process. Um, That uh, waiver has been granted only twice, as I've mentioned, most recently uh, under Donald Trump's administration. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break here in just a moment. I also want to remind you coming up in the five o'clock hour, we'll have our classic interview with Kevin Goose. He's the author of Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. That's coming up. In the um, second segment of the five o'clock hour here on the Georgine Rice Show, quick break. We'll be turn we'll return in just a moment.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Did I mention that James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering and Dan Rice has given up his office for the sake of the cause? I might not have mentioned that. Anyway, it's all true. Well, around 800,000 doses of the vaccine were expected to be in place for the start of the immunization program in the United Kingdom. And Margaret Keenan, 90 years old, she reportedly said she felt privileged when she became the first person in the UK to receive the Pfizer BioNTech coronavirus vaccine early Tuesday in Coventry, England. Around 800,000 doses of the vaccine are expected. The U.K. was the first country to authorize the vaccine for emergency use. In the trials, the vaccine was shown to have about a 95 percent efficacy. Vaccinations will be administered starting today at around 50 hospital hubs in England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. They'll also begin their vaccination rollouts today. I feel so privileged, she said, to be the first person vaccinated against COVID-19. She was quite happy to be reunited with her family. Dr. Anthony Fauci, Fauci, rather, who's the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, sparked controversy earlier when he said the U.K. regulations hadn't acted as carefully as the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. He said later Thursday that he meant to say U.S. authorities do things differently than their uh, British counterparts, not better, but his comments weren't phrased properly. Uh, And his initial comments, well, unfortunately, they stood. Meanwhile, Trump says the U.S. is just days away from FDA authorization of Pfizer coronavirus vaccine itself. On Tuesday, he said the forthcoming uh, coronavirus vaccine will end the pandemic, saying the U.S. is just days away from the first safe and effective vaccine to combat uh, the coronavirus. The president, uh, during a vaccine summit at the White House on Tuesday, touted Operation Warp Speed, his administration's public-private partnership, which was created over the summer to create a vaccine at breakneck speed. Uh, We're just days away from authorization from the FDA, and we're pushing them hard, the president said, adding that the U.S. government is following the agency's approval will immediately begin mass distribution. We are very, very happy. We are able to get things done at a level we haven't seen before, the president said, saying that vaccines created by Pfizer and Moderna are approximately 95 percent effective, saying that, projection was far exceeding anything that really anybody thought. We're very hopeful that the FDA will authorize the Pfizer vaccine within days and the Moderna vaccine almost immediately thereafter. The FDA is set to meet on Thursday regarding the Pfizer and BioNTech's application for emergency authorization use of their coronavirus vaccine just three weeks after the companies filed for it. The FDA also plans to meet on the 17th of December to discuss Moderna's vaccine. Well, the Food and Drug Administration on Tuesday, they released their analysis of the Pfizer and BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine, in which it found the vaccine met the prescribed success criterion and showed no specific safety concerns identified that would preclude issuance of an emergency use authorization. So that's very good news. On Thursday, a group of independent experts will meet to review the two analyses, one from the FDA staff scientists, the other from the vaccine's manufacturers, and to advise the agency whether to grant the EUA. If the panel recommends the approval, the FDA could formally grant the authorization of the vaccine as early as this weekend. The FDA's analysis highlighted a number of known benefits of the vaccine, including reduction in the risk of confirmed severe COVID-19 any time after dose one and reduction in the risk of confirmed COVID-19 occurrence at least seven days after dose two. Pfizer vaccine requires two doses for best results. Now, the company has reported its vaccine to be 95 percent effective at preventing symptomatic COVID-19. The UK, as I mentioned, began today with that very vaccine. Meanwhile, Governor Inslee has extended the COVID-19 restrictions until January 4th. So if there are any illusions about celebrating Christmas or the new year in, well, familiar fashion, that's probably not going to be the case. As COVID-19 cases rise and restrictions are set to expire, the governor of Washington discussed how the state's doing in tackling the pandemic. Citing these high numbers of COVID-19 cases and hospitalized patients, the current restrictions on indoor businesses, restaurants and gyms in Washington state are being extended through January least the fourth. The restrictions were set to expire on the 14th. Well, according to state officials, there continue to be record highs in COVID-19 cases with a spike in November. The number of hospitalized patients continue to rise into December. Health officials, and again, we're talking about the state of Washington, recently warned hospitalizations are increasing across the state. Statewide coronavirus data show more than 11,000 hospitalizations. Kings, Nahomish, and Pierce counties are among those where hospitalization numbers have been the highest. According to the state, 80% of ICU beds are occupied. Nearly 1,000 Washingtonians were in ICU beds on Tuesday. The number of hospitalizations are predicted to continue to rise through December. Responding to these record-breaking levels of COVID-19 spread in Washington state, the governor, Jay Inslee, announced the most severe restrictions on activity in mid-November since his stay-home, stay-healthy order was originally issued in March. Well, the fundamental difference in March, nearly all communal activities were banned outright, more activities are also uh, are allowed now i should say just with strict limitations on ha- where and how well here are some of the biggest restrictions and again we're talking about the state of washington eating at restaurants is allowed but only outdoors and with no more than 5 people at a table You can attend fitness classes if they're outside and socially distance. Some types of social gatherings are okay this time. You can be outdoors with no more than five people. You can even be indoors if everyone quarantines two weeks beforehand or one week if they get uh, tested and it comes back negative. Elective surgery is not banned. I should emphasize not banned. Construction is not banned. School districts have flexibility to allow some in-person learning if the local health officer permits it based on local COVID data. And while movie theaters are closed, as they were in the first lockdown in the state of Washington, this time there's an exception for drive-ins. Retail stores can be open, unlike last time when only grocery stores and other essential services were allowed. The stores just have to make sure they don't go over 25% capacity. So be prepared to stand in line. Personal services like barbers and hair salons can stay open now, but they, too, must keep it at 25 percent capacity. Weddings and funerals are okay this time with up to 30 people, though receptions are once again banned. Church services are allowed at 25 percent capacity as long as the means that means no more than 200 people. And most team sports are once again banned. However, this time there's an exception for pro and college teams that follow rigorous protocols. Well, Governor Inslee is also allocating $50 million in economic support for businesses and safeguards for workers impacted by the pandemic. The money is in addition to millions in relief announced when the restrictions were put in place. Washington CARES Act is spending so far includes $120 million for rental assistance, $69 million for food assistance, $15 million for energy assistance, $164 million for child care, and $510 million for for local government and again all in the state of Washington well speaking of medical breakthroughs the first blood test to help diagnose alzheimers has gone on sale more than 5 million people in the united states have alzheimers disease a company has started selling the first blood test to help diagnose it a leap for the field that could make it much easier for people to learn whether they have dementia it also really raises concern about the accuracy and impact of such life altering news. Well, independent experts are leery because key tests uh, results haven't been published and the test has not been approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. It's being sold under more general rules for commercial labs, but they agree that a simple test that can be done in a doctor's office has long been needed. It might save, um, might have saved uh, Tammy Maida. A decade of futile trips to doctors who chalked her her symptoms up to depression, anxiety, and menopause before a $5,000 brain scan last year finally showed she had Alzheimer's. I now have an answer, says the 63-year-old former nurse from San Jose, California. If a blood test had been available, I might have been afraid of the results, but would have jumped on that to find out. More than 5 million people, as I've mentioned, in the United States and millions more around the world have Alzheimer's. It's the most common form of dementia. To be diagnosed with it, people have to have symptoms such as memory loss plus evidence of a buildup of protein called beta amyloid in the brain. Well, the best way now to measure the protein is a costly PET brain scan to usually uh, is not covered by insurance. Well, that means most people don't get one and are left wondering if their problems are due to normal aging, Alzheimer's, or something else. Well, the uh, blood test from C2N Diagnostics from St. Louis, it aims to fill that gap. The company founders include doctors David Holtzman and Randall Bateman of Washington University School of Medicine, who headed research that led to the test and are included on a patient or rather on a patent that the uh, St. Louis University licensed to C2N. So we'll continue to follow that story. As it develops. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a break for news and traffic at the top of the hour. We'll continue to take a look at the news and we'll share a classic interview with Kevin Goose, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Coming up later in this hour, we'll hear from Kevin Goose, his book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. Right here on the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the saga of uh, Michael Flynn has probably finally come to an end. I only say probably because it seems to rear its ugly head again and again. But a judge has now formally dismissed Michael Flynn's case after the president's pardon. Well, Judge Emmett Sullivan dismissed the criminal case against former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn on Tuesday putting an end to a case that took a number of turns after Flynn's initial guilty plea three years ago. Well, Trump pardoned Flynn in late November after Sullivan refused to automatically grant the Justice Department's motion to dismiss Flynn's case earlier this year. Well, the history of the Constitution, its structure, and the Supreme Court's interpretation of the pardon power make clear the President Trump's decision to pardon Mr. Flynn is a political decision, not a legal one. That's what the... uh, Judge said in his Tuesday order, because the law recognizes the president's political power to pardon, the appropriate course is to dismiss this case as moot. Well, at least he got his dig in before doing so, end quote. Well, uh, Flynn pled guilty in December 1st, 2017, to giving false statements to the FBI regarding his communications with a Russian ambassador. His sentencing was delayed due to his cooperation with prosecutors. But in 2019, Flynn began to claim innocence in the case, citing alleged FBI misconduct. Well, FBI records were produced that called their interview into question, including handwritten notes that uh, indicated an internal question as to whether the interview was meant to extract truth from Flynn or to get him to lie, in other words, entrapment, so authorities could pressure him with prosecution or termination. Well, the Department of Justice then moved to dismiss the case, but Sullivan refused. The judge, instead, appointing retired Judge John Gleason to argue against the Department of Justice. Gleason claimed that the Department of Justice motion was politically motivated to help an associate of Mr. Trump and therefore should not be granted. An appellate court ordered Gleason to dismiss the case, but that decision was later reversed. Sullivan had, yet, uh, had not yet issued a decision on the motion to dismiss, which he officially denied as moot on Tuesday, given the case being dismissed on account of the pardon. So it would appear that this is finally the end of... Um, that series of decisions. Well, 14 soldiers were fired suspe- and suspended from Fort Hood after widespread violence and sexual harassment. The actions are the result of an independent investigation following the bludgeoning death of specialist Vanessa Gillian. Well, 14 officers and enlisted soldiers at Fort Hood were fired or suspended on Tuesday And Army leaders announced several policy changes after an independent investigation revealed a toxic culture that fueled sexual harassment and failed to protect female soldiers from harm. The actions taken by Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy come in the aftermath of a year that saw 25 soldiers assigned to Fort Hood die due to suicide, homicide or accidents, including the bludgeoning death of specialist Vanessa Gillian. Gillian was missing for about two months before her remains were found. Her death sparked the basis of an independent review, which officials say uncovered a deficient climate at Fort Hood, including ineffective implementation of sexual harassment and assault response and prevention or SHARP program that resulted in a pervasive lack of confidence, fear of retaliation and significant underreporting of cases, particularly within the enlisted ranks. The Fort Hood Independent Review Committee said they interviewed 647 soldiers, 503 of whom were women, and uncovered a permissive environment for sexual assault. Of 93 credible accounts of sexual assault at the base, only 59 were reported. In total, there were 217 unreported accounts of sexual harassment discovered, and many women said they feared retaliation or ostracism and felt that reporting the instances would derail their careers. Fort Hood leadership um, knew or should have known the high risk of harm to female soldiers, according to that report. I've determined the issue at Fort Hood are directly related to leadership failure, McCarthy said in a press briefing on Tuesday alongside Army Chief of Staff General James McConville and Sergeant Major of the Army Michael Grinston. Prior to coming here, we spoke with Vanessa Gillian's mother and told her we would change the culture. It is our sacred duty to protect our soldiers so we can protect our nation, McConville said. McCarthy announced that the Army has created a People First Task Force to implement the recommendations of the Fort Hood Independent Review Committee, which will be unveiled in March, and also announced a new Army policy focused on the first 48 hours. After a soldier fails to report for duty, when one of our teammates does not report for duty, we will change their duty status as absence unknown and take immediate action to find them. An unfortunate loss leading to this uh, much needed investigation. Well, Cornell University is offering minority students an exemption from its flu vaccination requirement citing the United States' longstanding systematic racism and health inequities as justification. Well, Cornell's health requirement guidelines, which were first reported by Campus Reform, they mandate that students studying on campus receive a flu vaccination. The university offers an exemption, however, for students who identify as black, indigenous, or as a person of color and have concerns about being required to take a a vaccine. I thought it was rather interesting that they referred to students who identify as, well, the university cited current and historical systemic uh, racism as an acceptable reason for minority students to seek an exemption. It's understandable that the current compact requirement uh, may feel suspect or even exploitive to some biopics members of the, com- the Cornell community. The university online of uh, said of the exemption. Uh, all, additionally, recent acts of violence against Black people by law enforcement may contribute to feelings of distrust or power- powerlessness. I'm not sure what law enforcement has to do with vaccination if this is a requirement to preserve the health of the students. But while the university urges minority students to comply with the full vaccine requirement to protect their health and that of others in the community, the health guidelines provide contact information for the students who may know the science and still feel distrusting of health care or request uh, to request an exemption. The only other uh, specifically outlined exemption from the flu vaccine requirement is for medical or religious reasons. Non-exempt students who arrive on campus without the required vaccinations will have a temporary hold placed on their registration status, according to Cornell Health. If Cornell finds them to be non-compliant, they will be charged a fee and disenrolled from the university. Now, it seems a bit absurd to me if there is an exemption process that one can apply to. You have reasons why you prefer not to have the exemption and it's, it's upheld for either um, religious or health reasons. That's, that seems reasonable. But as an African-American person that you are automatically exempt because of police brutality and systemic racism doesn't make sense to me if you're talking about the health concerns of the individual and that of others with whom they come in contact. Uh, but this is, um, this is what critical race theory, I suppose, looks like on the ground. Well, China has become the e u s largest trade partner for the first time. Latest data shows highlighting that the economic ties of the close, comprehensive strategic partnership between China and the e u are intertwined with each other's industrial chain. Well, the data Also discredits some media reports that Beijing's hopes of using Europe as a counterweight to the U.S. have faltered as China faces rising anger over its policies and behavior, including trade. Well, Chinese experts said the noise will not have any impact on sound trade relations between the two economies. We'll be right back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest in his latest book points out that throughout life's journey, everyone has moments when the past affects the present. We all know what that's about. We come to a crossroads where the past has to be faced, and we know on some level our lives require God's healing. Well, these junctures usually fall under one of three categories. Believing our best is behind us, believing we missed our best through bad decisions— or believing the hurts caused by others or ourselves are insurmountable to live our best life in God. Well, his book is titled Dry Bones Redeeming Your Past Invites You to See Healing. It's not only possible, but that it can be yours for. Um, for time and eternity. Well, Kevin Goose is my guest. He served in ministry since 1991. His deep conviction is that anyone can discover all of God's potential for their life. In addition to pastoring, Kevin has done leadership development, been a life coach to young fathers, a director of hospice, and a high school soccer coach. He's been married to Beth since 1989. They have four children, five grandchildren, um, two sons-in-law, and a daughter-in-law. He joins us today to talk about Uh, His book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me.
2: You know, this is a season in which many of us, although not all, have more time to really think about uh, things that we might not um, be able to or or were able to avoid during times when we were more active outside of our homes. So this is a very timely subject Um, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. And let's begin by uh, drawing attention to the reference that dry bones uh, makes from Scripture. This is a reference to Ezekiel. Can you explain to listeners who may not be familiar with the story uh, what these dry bones represent?
0: Yes, the the dry bones in Ezekiel represents when uh, the Lord shows Ezekiel the nation of Israel and basically beyond hope. And as he shows him the vision of these dry bones, he asks him, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel, he answers wisely. He says, Lord, um, you know. And then God begins to show him how what was dead could be alive again. And so the reference for us in the book is that there are times in our lives, it just happened in my own story, but I know in many others where we look at, so to speak, things in shambles, and God says, can I do something with this? And really all we know to say is, well, Lord, you know, meaning we sure hope so, but we're not sure. But God has a way of letting us know that, yes, he can rebuild what was broken and he can make alive what was dead.
2: You know, I think oftentimes when we read in Scripture a reference like that, you've just mentioned from Ezekiel 37, it's easier for us to imagine that that could happen than that our past, our history, the thing we look back on with regret, um, can be reconciled, redeemed, and we can move forward in hope. Why do you think it's so challenging for us to uh, to imagine that we too can find uh, redemption, that we can find uh, that our past is redeemed?
0: There are a couple of things I think really are, are pivotal in that. One, I find that for many of us and for many people, forgiving themselves is sometimes harder than forgiving others because we re- we replay Thoughts, attitudes, actions, behaviors—that we're like, how could I have done that, or why did this happen? And so I think this forgiving of self—it's almost like we we practically have a hard time believing that God is greater than what we've done, which ties into the second is, is that we don't make the shift from shame to regret. You know, shame like the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve, confronted with their sin, they run from God and hide. Mm-hmm. Where, where repentance is where we run to God and say, Lord, you're our only hope. And I think that for some people, whether it's not forgiving
2: themselves or getting stuck in a place of shame, they have a hard time seeing a way forward. It seems to me that's uh, ripe territory for the enemy who wants to exploit our inability to fully experience The forgiveness, the redemption, and the healing that God has in store for us and can literally wreck our lives based on a past experience that we may have repented of and moved on from. Uh, So it's really important, this book, Redeeming Your Past, getting us to a place where we not only accept what God has given us, um, that we are able to move forward without shame, as you've described.
0: Uh, Absolutely. You know, it's this It's the sense that the enemy lies to us when when he tempts us, somehow believing that God is holding out on us, right? Temptation at its core is I'm questioning God's character, his commands. But then if I give in to temptation and sin, then he just kicks us when we're down and tries to make us believe we're unlovable, unforgivable. And so your point is is so right that this moving past that shame and then seeing that God can do something um, is so key. How personal is this book um, to you? It's very personal. You know, I had been in ministry when when really I hit bottom. I'd been in ministry about 25 years, uh, had been married about 27 years, and I was the poster child for burnout. Uh, I was just a hard driver who just on some level believed if I pushed harder, I could escape what were those either hurts from the past or even the disappointments in the present and i became very bitter and very blinded and unfortunately there came a point where i crossed some ethical and moral boundaries that required me to step back from from ministry and walk through restoration Um, i had broken my covenant with god with my wife i had you know brought hurt and to other people my children family and really had brought shame to the name of jesus christ and so personally I had to walk this journey when Zeke, although he hadn't been wrong, but in comparing to drive, I looked at the ash heap. I was like, Lord, I don't even see a way forward. But God revealed himself in a powerful way. And so this book comes out of uh, God healing me and my family from a broken place that many would have thought wasn't possible. Mm
2: hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is definitely a hopeful book. What are some of the lessons that you learned on your journey to uh, to healing?
0: You know, there there are kind of a few that really stand out to me as a pivotal, and and that is that God can see us through the lens of forgiveness and give that forgiveness, but that I have to be patient for the journey of other people to see my heart and my life. Mm. It's it's kind of like I want. God sees my heart, and so He knows my intentions, but other people can only see actions. And so I think a first principle was, I couldn't be frustrated or put demands or deadlines on people for their journey to not just forgive, but also to trust. And that was pivotal because the deeper the relationship, sometimes the longer the journey. And so it was important for me to learn to rest in my identity in God, even though He was very clear to me that the journey of healing with people is different. And just because they have a journey doesn't mean that they're doing something wrong. But that was a first key lesson.
2: Mm, mm. Yeah, and that can be very, uh, very challenging. Now, what advice do you give to someone who feels that they have made such horrific uh, mess of their life, they've made such serious mistakes, that there's really no hope for a better future? I mean, you've already given us a glimpse into your own story and that journey of healing and restoration. But what do you say to the one who says, well, but, you know, my situation is, is beyond the pale.
0: You, you know, first is that even though it's hard for us to, to come to grips with what we're feeling, there's a couple key principles. It's good to acknowledge what we're feeling, but I, I heard a pastor say once my feelings are real, but they may not always be right. And in that, there has to come a place where I would say to somebody that we have to make a decision, even if our emotions have to come along in time, where the blood of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ is greater in my life than what I've done wrong. Uh, And so there's a place of saying, Lord, even my failures can't be bigger than you. And then second in that, I believe there's a hope in Scripture that because God doesn't hide from us— the broken people that he had to redeem and restore. I mean, many people, if we were God's HR department, we, we may not have hired Moses, you know, or David. We would have said that, that that Peter was there. We would have said, what do you mean Rahab or Ruth? But God has this amazing way to say, look, you see what that's broken? That person is ready for me to be their everything. And now I can show that we even have great saints of the scripture but we have to be mindful. They began as broken people that God had to redeem.
2: We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to take a hopeful look of how to redeem our past from that status of dry bones. Again, my guest this afternoon is Kevin Goose, uh, and his book is titled Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Kevin Goose, who is the author of Dry Bones Redeeming Your Past. Now, you break down three ways in which we look at our past, uh, coming to the conclusion that uh, we are beyond hope. Can you describe for us these three ways in which we tend to look back and uh, imagine that there is no uh, hope for redemption?
0: Yes. The first is the glory days. And that's where a person looks back at a time and says, my life was at its best then. And they are struggling with either trying to recreate it in the present, or having a frustration that they can't. And so there's a sense in which they have to let go to move forward. The second is when people have regrets over missed opportunities. It's kind of like the the opposite of the first. It's saying, oh, if I would have done something different or better or right, my life wouldn't be where it is now. And they believe that they're living a consolation prize life as well. This is the best I can have. And they don't have a full picture of redemption. And the third is the healing from past pain, which can be either or both pain that I've caused or the pain that has been done to me. And there are times people are dragging that along with them as an open wound or a bitterness or a pain in their life that God needs to bring healing to.
2: Mm. You write that our decisions can either break the bonds of the past or perpetuate past failures into ongoing behavior. Explain what you mean by that and where we begin once we've identified, OK, this is where I am. This is where I'd like to go. How do I get from here to there?
0: Yes, I like to picture it from like a um a chore my mom used to give me as a child and that was pulling weeds. I would sometimes try to snip those dandelions off at the top and think the job was done, but all it took was a little bit of heat and time and, and the weed would return. For many people, they'll look at the example or the event that just happened, and they'll try to deal with that in the moment, but they don't go back to the root of where things have come from. And as a result, they tend to be on a repeating cycle. So one of the keys is that whether it's the glory days, past regret, or past pain, is being willing to kind of dig in, whether through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, a skilled helper, a pastor, to be able to dig in and say, now, wait a minute where did this start in my life as a root? Because this needs to be dug out. I'm tired of the snipping and going back, snipping, returning, going back. And so by getting to the root, we can experience healing that doesn't just deal with the symptom, but deals with the core issues.
2: Mm. What role does humility play in redeeming our past?
0: Oh, this one's this one's tough. You know these tensions of scripture. It, it tells us that when we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, then He will lift us up. Because one of the challenges when we're trying to get our past redeemed is we can fall into the traps of either control, uh, impatience, or trying to force something. And humility is is basically saying, Lord, I I will stay in this posture of repentance and renewal. As long as I need to, and as long as you have me to, a great example is Zacchaeus, who when he comes to Jesus, he says, I'll give half of what I have to the poor, and if I've taken from someone, I'll return it fourfold. Well, Zacchaeus probably couldn't remember everybody he had ripped off. But he basically said to Jesus, I'm in a posture place that as you bring people across my path, I'm willing to walk that healing journey. And so humility keeps us from being defensive, which could communicate to people that we're really not sorry. Humility is key to showing the core of our heart that we want to walk this journey with God and others.
2: Mm. One of the things we tend to do when we're on a journey is to look to the right and to the left, to look at others, compare ourselves to them. Uh, But you make the point that when we do that, we can um, distort the way that we see our own lives. We're perhaps less honest or or our, our goal is distorted or we think less than we ought to. How important is it that we not compare ourselves to others? And what do we do if that's a practice that we are in the habit of doing?
0: You know, if we look to others, the, the problem is it's almost like a type of deflection, and so if we see that starting to happen, it, it doesn't mean we don't love others, but we recognize, I can only take responsibility for what God has placed before me. I think it's Peter when Jesus restored him after his three denials. Right after Jesus restores him in John uh, 21, Peter looks at the Apostle John and says, well, Jesus, what about him? And the Lord says, well, what is that to you? You follow me. And so I believe that when we're distracted, it's like the runner who's coming to the tape, but they look to the side to see how the other person's doing. It slows them, and it actually robs them of the victory that they were intended to have. And so I think that it's its not a self-absorption, but rather it's a focus that says, my eyes have to be on Jesus and the work he's doing in me. Then others will see that through me. If I compare myself to others— We tend to get coveting or jealous or we feel inferior. And all of those are just hurdles in the healing process.
2: That is so true. I ran for uh, University of Oregon, and one of the things the coaches always drummed into us was to run straightway through the line, not to look to the right or the left, because you're absolutely right. It will deprive you of those um, absolutely critical seconds as you approach the finish line that mean the difference between victory and defeat. So that's such great, um, great advice. Now, I know for you, the church. Um, came alongside and supported your journey toward healing. Can you comment a little bit about that? Because I think people have different experiences. What role should we anticipate the church uh, to play? And as those of us who are the church are listening, what should our response be as we're witnessing uh, or participating in the journey of uh, those who are looking to see their past redeemed? There are kind of two categories
0: when it comes to the church that I think are pivotal. One is what I call those those core people who will be part of the redemption process. Think of like with the Apostle Paul, Ananias who came to him right after his conversion, or Barnabas who went to him and believed in him and built him up during his discipleship journey. God will have key Christians who can see past what we did and into the core of who we are, either because maybe they weren't hurt as deeply or God's just given them a tremendous gift of a redemptive heart in how they see others. It's vital for a person to connect with those core people who can help along that journey. As to the crowd, I think if people, they know someone who has fallen morally or has failed and committed sin, is that we should never celebrate it. And second, we should avoid cynicism. It's okay to say, mm. I'm disappointed, I'm hurt, um, I feel betrayed. Those are truthful statements, but the recognition is to say that Jesus is more powerful than what they have done wrong in my life. There are people who showed grace that were part of the crowd. Now, long-term, I didn't necessarily stay in, in deep relationship because I was no longer their pastor, but they did it the right way before, so to speak, that relationship faded as it, as it needed to, while others in the core, they walked with
2: me over the course of months and years, and God used them in a pivotal way in my life. We're talking about the book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. My guest is Kevin Goose. Uh, Bitterness played a role in your healing process, and it's not altogether uncommon. If you are reflecting back on those glory days or regrets over missed opportunities or um, you're healing from past pain that either you inflicted on others or others have inflicted on you, how important is it not to uh, descend into bitterness on this journey toward healing?
0: It is essential. Uh, Unfortunately, I learned the hard way. When Paul in his letters talks about how bitterness can cause us to bite and devour one another, Uh, Jeremiah the prophet, God even said to him in Jeremiah 15, 19, that the precious and the vile had to be separated or assisted. Bitterness is a poison. It's something that can be vile in our lives. And what it does is it pollutes the precious work of God. And so bitterness focuses on what life isn't that I wish it was, or what the other person did, or your frustration over what I did. And one of the keys was recognizing that God had to extract that and reinstate in my life, and as he does in others' lives, gratitude, thanksgiving, praise. Uh, You know, in the scriptures, whether it's Job or other characters, they teach us that even when life is difficult— We can come to a posture of worship and praise and joy, but bitterness will just pull us down. And for some people, they're concerned, but if I let go of that, the other person will get away with it. Or what if God forgives them? But at the core, bitterness hurts the individual. As one pastor, uh, Jimmy Evans says,
2: forgiveness doesn't make the person right. It just makes me free. Kevin, thank you so much for talking with us today. I so appreciate you and your book, Dry bones. Thank you for having me.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back for the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show we just learned the Supreme Court has rejected an effort to overturn the results of the presidential election in Pennsylvania, signaling that the high court will not go along with the president's unprecedented effort to win another term, despite a decisive popular vote and the Electoral College defeat. Well, the lawsuit was brought by Republican Representative Mike Kelly, who argued a 2019 state law authorizing universal mail-in balloting is unconstitutional and that all ballots cast by mail in general in a general election in Pennsylvania should be thrown out. The application for injunction relief presented to Justice Alito and by him referred to the court is denied, read the court's order, which did not comment further or suggest any dissent among the court's nine justices. Once again, the application for injunctive relief presented to Justice Alito and by him referred to the court is denied. Representative Kelly, along with several others, filed the lawsuit on the 21st of last month and requested Pennsylvania either reject the over 2.5 million ballots that were cast by mail or allow state lawmakers to select presidential electors, Republicans control Pennsylvania's state legislature. The state Supreme Court unanimously dismissed the lawsuit on the 28th of November, saying the GOP had waited too long to challenge the law. Now the U.S. Supreme Court has said they will not accept this Uh, This lawsuit and the referral is denied. Well, traditional social media networks are experiencing a backlash from users as they continue to cancel or otherwise censor conservative views. Well, as a result, alternative free speech social media providers like MeWe and Parler are seeing a pretty big surge in new users to their platforms. So here are three of them you might want to take note of. As an alternative to Twitter, there is parlor and that's spelled with an e-r-p-a-r-l-e-r parlor with a lack of uh, content moderation and what appears to be targeted fact checking of users is driving a flood of new subscribers to parlor as of november uh, 16th 10 million total users have signed up onto parlor the henderson nevada-based social network application advertising itself as a, a haven for real conversation for comparison between twitter Uh, Report 330 million active users. So far, this one has 10 million. A parlor and other services such as MeWe and Rumble have managed to attract millions of members via their lenient free speech policies. Parlor, for example, promises not to censor its users on the basis of their opinions and to foster a nonpartisan public space. Those standards differed significantly from the current approach on Facebook and Twitter, whose latest free speech policies involve actively limiting the spread of false information and fake news by their definition, a strategy that started to increase aggressive Um, increasingly become aggressive in the lead-up to the 2020 presidential election. So long as users don't incite violence or threaten harm, members will not be uh, deplatformed for their views on grounds of misinformation on Parler. In no case will Parler decide what content will be removed or filtered or whose account will be removed on the basis of the opinion expressed within the content at issue. Parler policies are to use a well-known concept in First Amendment law, viewpoint-neutral— Parler's community guidelines state, well, that policy effectively enables users to post inaccurate content on Parler. Since uh, the site lacks fact-checkers or an independent editorial board, Parler CEO John Matt says users would instead be checked the old-fashioned way. That is, via the Socratic method, which naturally plays out through open debate or the free exchange of ideas. Another one that I mentioned is simply titled MeWe. It's an alternative to Facebook. Well, it's similar to parlor. MeWe is an ad-free social media platform that many liken to Facebook. It was also founded on a commitment to free speech. MeWe CEO Mark Weinstein told Rolling Stone last year, if you're just a regular person from around the world who has a political point of view and you're abiding by our terms of service, that's none of our business. But if you're a conservative or liberal and you're spewing hate, you're going to be out. Well later, um, or like Parlor, MeWe has strict policy against promoting violence along with other standard exemptions to free expression if it, the users in its users' guidelines, such as prohibiting pornography, bots, spam, and so on. Apart from those standard exemptions, the Albuquerque, New Mexico-based social media service describes itself as having absolutely no newsfeed manipulation, no ads, and no targeting, a policy that sets it apart from its larger Silicon Valley. Rivals. Well, the network's relaxed free speech policies has uh, shot MeWe to the top of the app chart. The next gen uh, social network is currently listed as the number two free speech app in the Apple store, coming in second only to Parler's number one free app ranking. And then there's Rumble, which is an alternative to YouTube. Likewise, the application Rumble, it's a video sharing website akin to YouTube. It's seeing a surge in popularity. Rumble dubs itself as free speech alternative, uh, we don't censor political debate or dialogue. Rumble CEO Chris Pavlovsky uh, tweeted on November tenth, like Parler and Mewe, Rumble is skyrocketing to the top of the, the download chart on the Google and Apple app stores. Well, the company has projected seventy five million to ninety million users or user views anyway, on its site for the month of November. That's up uh, from sixty point. 5 million views it garnered in October. Well, the sudden rise in alternative social media sites such as Parler, MeWe, and Rumble attest to the market demand for social networks that are built on authenticity and real user experiences, not only uh, from conservatives, but from all speech minded users. So, those are some alternatives to consider as they have injected themselves into the ongoing online sphere, if you will. Well, One of the common complaints that uh, customers have in the Portland area is that their cans and bottles, when they're returned under the new rubric, uh, they don't get what they have dropped off. So I noted that KGW actually did a test uh, they heard lots of complaints. They um, have had them themselves. They uh, reviewed Yelp, Google, Better Business Bureau, and so on. And there were lots of um, angry posts from people who had dropped their bottles off dutifully, as they're supposed to, to get that $0.10 cent refund for every bottle or can that's credited to the customer's account. But many of these customers complained that the incorrect amounts were being credited to their accounts. And in some cases, entire bags of bottles and cans were missing uh, they would credit one bag, but not the other, said one user. Well, so KGW decided to test the system, and they fi- they filled five green bags with cans and bottles. They dropped them off at various bottle drop sites around Portland. They dropped off a total of 400 cans uh, with 80 um, per bag. Well, all of the bags were counted incorrectly, although in uh, favor of the KGW uh, drop-off. Um, all of the bags were counted incorrectly Two of the bags were undercounted while the machine overcounted the containers in their uh, three bags. In total, Bottle Drop credited the account for 404 containers when they dropped off 400. So why the confusion? And this might be helpful. Apparently, the primary problem with all of this is we don't put the labels on securely and the uh, bags are not Closed securely, some of them fell out of the bags, some of them some of the bags were completely decimated because they came open in their cans and bottles everywhere. So a recent audit with the Secretary of State's office called for greater transparency in this whole thing. But if you want to get back what you're putting in, make sure the label is uh, secure. make sure the bag is closed. Don't put a bow at the top. Put a good knot at the top to make sure you get as much as you are sending back through the system. Just one little final note with the uh, bottle drop. Hey, I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Join us tomorrow for a Radiothon you're not going to want to miss. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.